0: They monetize, and you are the product. But we're also guilty of this too. And so just be more conscious of how, when, and where you're using it. And it's so fascinating because you can be physically in a place, but not mentally, spiritually, or emotionally. And what I always say is not having your phone is the new vacation. So because we're always on, we're never present. And that can be to our detriment. And so I think if leaders want a more human workplace, they want to...
1: Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. Our quote for today is from Andrew Yang and it is millennials get a bad rap sometimes about their grit and perseverance. Our guest today Dan Chabel is part of that new generation of business leaders. He's a New York Times best-selling author and the managing partner of Workplace Intelligence, a research and advisory firm helping HR to adapt to trends, drive performance and prepare for the future. He's also the best-selling author of three books, Back to Human, Promote Yourself and Me 2.0 and is the host of the five questions podcast where he's interviewed world-class humans such as richard branson condoleezza rice rachel ray gary vanderchuk and jay shetty dan excited to welcome you to the elevate
0: podcast today so happy to be here with you and it's good that you know my uncle because you got my last name down (laughs) perfectly and it's so rare I've been yeah I've been using that
1: name for a while so that that I had a distinctive advantage he told me you're the much more famous Shaw and that he gets confused <laughs> if you ask if he's related to you all the time
0: yeah and our last name gets confused with Charles Schwab uh, yeah so a lot of people say Schwabel. you should be like yeah I'm, I'm his son how can I help you yeah, uh, <laughs> I probably should do that
1: <laughs> open more doors People always ask me, like, used to be, uh, there was a Robert called Ser. I think it was the Real Networks, and people would always ask me. And then finally, I was like, yeah, maybe, like, what, what do you need? All right, so I always like to start uh, with understanding the beginning a little bit. When did you realize that you had a passion for non- entrepreneurship and, and branding, and uh, what originally drew you to those ideas?
0: In my early 20s, I started a blog in October 2006 called Driven to Succeed. That blog turned into personalbrandingblog.com and the art of writing on that blog 8 to 12 times per week is what ignited my entrepreneurial journey because through the blog and getting comments from people and building up the platform to get a lot of views every month, I saw it was possible. You know, I had my ideas out there of how to build a career. I was very young. So I got to deal with a lot of criticism and ageism around, you know, what do you know? You're so young. How can you give people (laughs) advice? And so it's actually, during that period, you know, everything not only sparked, but it's kind of the reason why I do research now. Because back then, when people were criticizing me, I started citing third-party research studies. And now I have a research company because I saw research back then as my shield against ageism. As in, you know, if people don't believe what I'm saying, you'll believe this third party source and thus you will uh, kind of back off.
1: (laughs) And, And eventually you became the third party source.
0: Exactly. Now it's over 50 studies in just about seven years. And so, yeah, back then, you know, the blog was the platform for me. And when people commented, I didn't just see them as commenters. I saw them as potential partners and sponsors. So, from the blog, I launched a magazine called Personal Branding Magazine. And basically, I bought up like 50 domains, including personalbranding.com. So, I just wanted to own the personal branding world back then, which is very ubiquitous now with everyone kind of in the space building their own personal brand through various mediums like LinkedIn, a blog, a podcast, et cetera. And, but then it was like, it was pretty new. I mean, Tom Peters had been talking about personal branding for about a decade before that he wrote the brand called you which is the cover of fast company magazine uh, and after reading that article i was very inspired and i i kind of paired what he was saying with my role at emc at the time and then my use of social media outside of working on weekends to write my first book me 2.0 so i was one of the first or early people to see the opportunity of using social media to, to enhance your career i wrote some of the early articles on You know how to use LinkedIn to build your personal brand and Twitter and all those social networks back then. But even for the magazine, I recognized that the people who were connecting with me already, who were interested in personal branding, could be sponsors. So, so I produced you know over a dozen magazines over several years, and the commenters became the advertisers for that magazine. And the magazine was kind of like me getting my MBA because I did everything for the magazine. So I. Created it. I designed it. I've recruited over 100 contributors. I think I had between Four and 12 sponsors per issue. I had calmness. I Distributed it. I marketed it. So I just enjoyed the process and through doing everything I learned about what I'm good at what I wasn't as good at you know now I don't design anything you know everything is outsourced to people who are way better than I am and so I've realized over you know a decade now, and I'm sure you think about this: is you know if I'm not really good at something and I don't really enjoy it, I'm going to let someone who is do it for me.
1: Yeah, that's a good two by two matrix. Do you like yeah. it, Nara? Is you good at it?
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's also like the value chain. It's like where do I add the most value in the value chain for creating a project, and uh, then I invest more of my time in that part in those parts of the value chain, and everything else I just have partners who. Help carry it through, and I just learned that over time.
1: Yeah, and for the entrepreneurs out there, I want to lock into two things that from that story. First is the timing. So you said two thousand six,
0: right? Yep, two thousand six, and then two thousand seven is when I really got into it, and I, I created the personal branding blog.
1: So these questions might go into each other, but let's go backwards. You talked about writing eight to ten times a week, uh, and and I don't know the answer to this, but I'll, I'll load the question and ask it to you. I've heard from a lot of people who've built up brands or writing that they just had to write and put in the universe and put in the universe because everyone's always like how do i start something and have it take off and then all of that sort of quality and effort at some point in the future hockey stick you know it, it is just the culmination of all that work did you see the same thing i mean was were you writing these things for a long time before it really caught on and it was just that habit of doing it that kept you going
0: the first book was built out of hundreds of articles i wrote for that blog yeah. the magazine was inspired because of the blog my consulting practice back then was inspired because of the blog so the blog was the original platform and to me in 2006 a little bit in 2007 was an online diary it was capturing my thoughts because in college i had seven internships and in high school i had an internship i had understood the art of self marketing especially through marketing you know material and websites At a young age and no one my age was doing it and people would ask for my help you know in college of how you know how to stand out how to get jobs how to get internships how to network and i was just really on the leading edge compared to my peers and so i thought i had something there but it really wasn't until i had my final set of interviews for emc for a product marketing role and the guy who was interviewing me, I believe his name is David. He was looking at my resume. And back then my resume was two pages long. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, eight internships. I had my, my first small business doing website design back sophomore year of college. So, you know, he was looking down the resume and I had internships at big and small companies like Reebok, Lycos. Low jack and Tech Target and then companies you've never heard of before, where I got way more experience. At Reebok, I literally got no experience because uh, my manager had moved to a different group uh, the second week I was, I was there, and Reebok was acquired by Adidas that summer. Yeah so David was skimming down in my resume. I always remember his eyes went right to Reebok, <laughs> locked in on Reebok and was like, "Wow, that's cool. What did you do there?" And in my head I'm like,. Not much of anything, but I'll, you know, I'll come up with something on the spot. (laughs) So what that told me in that moment after getting that job was, wow, brands are really important. As much as I had thought brands were important before, they're way more important than I had thought and they open doors. I always saw brands as opening doors. So if you look at everything I do, you're going to see a brand next to it. You know, my bio, all my materials, everything is surrounded by branding because my thought process has always been if you've never heard of me, you might not trust me. But if you see that I'm associated with brands right. that you know, like, and trust, you're more willing to at least give me a chance. So that has always been my mantra.
1: And, and we know that that's, that's really important to millennials. You know, they will turn on a brand if they don't trust them or like them in their business practice. Um, one, one other thing Lisa, said, like, so your business 2006, it was really taking off. So your business was taking off during heading into 2008, right?
0: Roughly. No, no, no. I didn't even have a business then. I was oh, okay. still so I worked at EMC for three and a half years. I went from product marketing to online marketing. And then I created the first ever social media position based on what I was doing outside of work because Fast Company profiled me and said, you know, Dan is a pro at personal branding, but his day job is working at EMC. And then EMC got wind of it, sent it to PR, sent it, and then that got sent to a vice president who recruited me to be the first social media person in the company's history. And then that inspired my first book, Me 2.0. And then I quit my job and I started my first my company. Oh, so you wrote that book at, at EMC? During it, yeah. So yeah. it I was interesting. I, I was thinking about this the other day in conversation with a friend it was like Clark Kent and Superman, right? Like I'd be at EMC and I'd be Clark Kent. And then like on breaks, I would drive behind, you know, the nearest cafe and like interview Tim Ferriss or someone really famous. So outside of work, I felt like Superman. And then inside of work, I had this other identity of being Clark Kent.
1: So how did you get all these interviews. I think it's always a good question. Like how do you how did you position? Was it was it that brand? Like how did you were you able to get anyone on the on the phone who to conduct an interview with you?
0: You know, everything I've ever done started with someone you've never heard of before. Right. So for interviews, my first few interviews were with professors from my own personal blog. And now for my podcast, I interview, you know, Alyssa Milano and David Brooks and all sorts of people across different industries. So it's just Taken a long time. It's been almost twenty two hundred interviews in twelve years, but that's what the same with speaking. My speaking career, I spoke for free for three and a half years, I spoke at local colleges and in, in and around Boston, Massachusetts, and then I just built it up and built it up and built it up, and eventually I got paid. And instead of you know taking all the money from my first speaking gig, I gave thirty percent to a speaking agency, and then that made them want to rep me. And then that launched my professional speaking career. And then you could say books. I mean, the first book was rejected by 70 out of 70 agents and two publishers. Oh, wait, 70 out of 70 agents. And two publishers, correct. Yeah. And so it's just, it's always been the struggle. It's always been the buildup. And the first book came out of doing, you know, hundreds, maybe over a thousand blog posts at that time. It's always like this long-term buildup, like research. I did my first I think, six or seven research projects without pay. It's because I'm finding things that I really like and working really hard at it, and I'm willing to make short-term sacrifices to be able to do things forever. So I want to interview people forever. I want to do research forever. I want to speak forever. I want to you know, write books forever. So it's not hard decisions because it's easier to make short-term decisions when you know where you want to go long-term.
1: Yeah, that aligns to the notion of spiritual capacity that I talk about in Elevate. But you, you, you know where you want to go and it sounds like you are just going to keep going through a brick wall and, until it happens. So it's going to happen. I'm curious. So as you're doing these interviews, and I think this happens for a lot of us, right? Kind of the fake it till you make it. Who is the first one who you got someone who's really famous, who you're doing and you kind of had imposter syndrome? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going to be found out or I can't believe I'm actually interviewing X. Like, do you remember like who the first kind of big one was?
0: The first few big ones from the original blogging days were George Foreman, Ivanka Trump, and Jerry Springer, and maybe Tim Ferriss, Gary Vaynerchuk, and Seth Godin. Those are some of the, the ones that I remember from the early days. But now it's, I mean, it's been presidents. It's been <laughs> all sorts of people. But I think what what why it works for me is not just because of the platform and the reputation I built, but because I'm relentless. It took me six years to interview Tony Robbins. Like I'm willing to spend (laughs) years trying to interview someone, whereas maybe other people will be too afraid to reach out. Like I have friends who are way more successful than I am and they're afraid to reach out. And instead of me, my attitude is, instead of even thinking, should I reach out? The email has already been sent.
2: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Do people say
1: yes to you just to get you to stop trying after they just know you're not going to give up?
0: I don't know. To be honest, I think there's so many different reasons and and they never really tell me why they decided to do it. I think people feel like they're in good hands. That's part of it too. Like I'm, the way I describe myself based on you know my experiences connecting with other people through my life is um, I'm kind of uh, harmless, like a, a non-threat.
1: Yeah. Persistent non-threat.
0: Yeah. Persistent non-threat, meaning that <laughs> if you sit down with me, I'm like, how do I trick? I'm not saying, how do I trick this person to saying something so that it becomes a headline right. that will help boost my podcast? It's, yeah. hey, I just want to extract the best of what this person has to offer and humanize them and then let the world judge for themselves like that's my attitude whereas you know other people are more journalistic i don't consider myself a journalist even though i've written for right. all the business publications well you've
1: made the focus of your work uh, millennial branding specifically so how is branding different for millennials than say gen x or or other generations
0: i, I actually I don't really focus that much on that anymore. (laughs) I I would say in terms of my book material, it's more focused on my generation because I just can relate to them more because I'm one of them. So that's how I've always thought about that. But over the years, what I've discovered is that the material that I research and the content that I create, it's universally applicable, right? And I've recognized that we talk about generations, but it's also about where people are in their lives. And then, who they are as individuals, right? So we have to understand the difference between each. For instance, the way you would recruit or engage or sell to somebody who is 23 is going to be different than 43. But it's also going to be different if this, you know, a 25-year-old has two children or if the 34-year-old has, lives alone and is single. So it's life stage It's who they are as well. So certain people have different preferences. You know, one person, you know, is a a morning person. The other person is an evening person. So, you, you know, like if you're managing them, you might want to take that into account. So it's like everyone's different and everyone is at a different phase of their life. So we have to take in the entire person and human into account when we make decisions.
1: All right. We'll take a quick break. A word from our sponsors and we'll be right back with Dan. Hey everyone, I'm excited to share that my new book, Friday Forward: Inspiration and Motivation to End Your Week Stronger Than It Started, releases on September 1st. My Friday Forward newsletter has inspired over 200,000 readers and this book is a curated collection and update of the 52 most impactful stories from the series. Each story is intentionally written to challenge you to improve at work and in life and to lead others to do the same. If you enjoy the conversations on the show, you'll get a lot out of this book. Learn how to make lasting changes in your life, motivate others, and impact people you haven't even met. Get Friday Forward in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook on September 1st. And for more information, go to www.fridayforwardbook.com. That's www.fridayforwardbook.com. And we're back with Dan Chabel. So talk. We'll talk a little bit more just about personal branding, and then I'd love to move on to some of your recent work. But I, I know that some of the fear, and and maybe it's it is more natural for millennials who sort of grown up on the cell phone with selfies. But people have the fear of you know being considered kind of self promotional, and they look at how some people kind of manage their personal brand. Like how how do you coach people to build and promote their personal brand without drawing? Too much negative attention to themselves or, or having it being taken the wrong way.
0: The best way to do this is to take into account what your audience is looking for. Like how do you solve their problems? Yeah. For me, that is having a call with someone and then asking them a lot of questions. And I typically, because we live in a world where you can Google and find out a lot of information about someone, when I'm talking to them i don't i don't feel like i need to say much unless it comes up whereas i'm putting the focus more on them maybe the campaign they're working on or the problems they're trying to solve and then seeing you know how i would be able to support them and solve their problems so i think you turn it more on them i think one of the things dan pink told me a while ago one of his quotes was like let your work speak for itself meaning yeah. that just do really good work but i think that just doing really good work is not enough in today's world where the media is so fragmented, where everyone has social media profiles, everyone can like write on LinkedIn and, and whatnot. I think that you do have to be the chief marketing officer for the brand called you. I think you need to push your stuff out there, but you only want to do that to a certain extent. You don't want to overdo it because then people will unfollow you. So it's about coming up with with uh, how y- you are most comfortable engaging. You know, you have introverts versus extroverts, people who right. are more or less comfortable. So figure out what your rhythm is. But in order to get around being too self-promotional, think about other people's needs too. And the other thing that I do is I try and find people uh, who I want to mentor and support, and I just help them. I just don't care if they do anything for me, you know, in return in the future or anything, because I've I've done a lot over the past decade plus, I want to find people who I think have a good shot at achieving massive success and then just be part of that journey because it's enjoyable not because there's some personal gain. And I think that a lot of people have mentoring wrong in this society. Yeah. I was just interviewing the the new head of uh, content at Cosmo, chief the editor in chief at Cosmo Marlton magazine and she said she said that the best mentoring relationships are mutual and it is true. So I think that if you're looking to find a mentor that's just going to randomly give you an hour of time every week, that's not the right approach. I think that everyone can be your mentor. I think that you need to be able to find people who you can help as well. And it doesn't need to be as formal as people make it out to be.
1: Yeah, there's there's talk about reverse mentoring. I'd written on that. It seems to be a growing trend of sort of this mutual understanding of people from different generations or different experiences actually can learn from from each other, and it's not necessarily one sided.
0: And you need to be genuinely interested in what that person is doing, what they're about to. Right. I find that if I'm like really on board with who this person is, it's just natural. It's not forced. It's not like oh, I guess I have to call them to help them this week. It's more of I just am doing this. I'll, Text them, hey, have you seen this article? Or let me introduce you to this person. I'm not thinking about it in terms of transaction or it's taking up too much of my time. I'm just doing it because I want to invest in this person. I believe in what they're doing and I want to have a a long-term relationship. The thing that I've been thinking about more recently is the people who are extremely generous in a short period of time when you meet them, those end up becoming my close friends. Yeah. And, And the ones I'm generous to and the ones who are generous to me Two examples is one who is a, a superstar. I introduced him to my literary agent very quickly, like our second meeting. And then that's that's turned into a, a really good friendship for me. And the other one is when I was in college, I had never been set up on a date before. But this one girl, I you know, I just kind of met her. She came to one of our parties in my fraternity and she literally set me up with a girl and no one had ever put that much effort or thought into doing something like that for me. And so we became really good friends because of it. You didn't marry the girl, though. No, but yeah. <laughs> it's this great, generous act early yeah. in, a, you know, in a relationship or a connection that, that can really help solidify things quickly. I think about that all the time.
1: No, and the people that I know in my life, I, I, people just you know, I've talked about this, but you can smell the people who use networking when they need networking and it doesn't feel good or it doesn't feel like someone you want to help when they're just doing the rounds because they need something from everyone.
0: Yeah, you know, it's dig your well before you're thirsty, that that whole phrase. I think it's true. I think you always have to be doing this, but in in our situation, it's a little bit easier. So like a lot of people, when they have full-time jobs, they're comfortable. They don't think they have to do it. They're pretty settled. But you know, in today's world, your company could be acquired, there could be layoffs, there's so many factors, so it's to your detriment if you're not constantly putting yourself out there. And then for entrepreneurs like us, we're always kind of meeting people. Every single day, I'm connecting with at least three new people, because right. that's business, especially if you're running a company, like your job is to connect with people.
1: Yeah, and you know, I, I just wrote an article on this, and I'm sure you've talked about this too. But also, I think this is something that people who who are in the networking game understand. But like, make it easy for people to help you. You know, don't ask people to do stuff that you wouldn't do. Like, someone will reach out, hey, do you know anyone that's a good company to work for? They're looking for finance roles, and
0: I'm like, have you done the work? <laughs> like, By the what? way, that what you just said is so smart, and it's something I see. Very often, I'll have friends being like, can you help me get a job? And this, the first thing I say is I say, write down a list of the top 10 companies you would work for. And they never do it.
1: I always say that I offer people, they ask me, you know, they reach out and they ask these questions. I say, look, I, I don't know who's hiring. My friend might work at X company and I haven't talked to him. I don't know if he's hiring a controller, but if he is, and you do the work and you have a company and you come to me and you say, Hey, I see, you know, Dan and his company's hiring a controller and that'd be a role. I'm like, let me make an intro to Dan. So I offer this to everyone who asks me to like meet and like, provide headhunting services when that's not what I do you know, for them. And no one ever follows up with it. And and to what you were saying before, I there was someone I knew who I really wanted on my podcast, fascinated by him. And I saw that he'd endorsed another guy's book I had on my podcast. And I reached out and said, I'd like to have this person on my podcast. Here is the paragraph that you can just paste in an email to send to him introducing why I'd like to have him put your name on it. Like, There's literally nothing for you to do. And he said, sure. Got it. Sent it along. I had the person book the next day. So... In, even in these contexts, when you're asking for someone, don't show them that you're lazy. <laughs> like, do the work. Like, you should be able to write a paragraph about your career or your job or what you want. Don't ask someone else to do it.
0: Yeah. The other thing I do is I'm very critical of introductions. So, double blind. Not only that, but <laughs> I, I rarely do it so that when I do it, people take it more seriously. Right. And I have a lot of empathy when I do it. So I'm, psychologically thinking about how both parties can win and then when i do the when i communicate with them separately and then when i send an email connecting them i'm literally scripting out how the relationship could work <laughs>
1: Right. And I think people confuse mutual, right? Like if someone said to me, oh, I'm, I need a keynote, at a huge conference, and I have a $100,000 budget, and do you know anyone that could be a speaker? And I, if I introduce you to this guy, you're probably not going to be unhappy with that introduction, right? There's, there's clearly mutual benefit. You know, but a lot of times people say, oh, I see Dan's company is scaling. I'm sure he has HR needs. You know, I'd love to talk. Do you mind introduce? And, and those are not the intros that you want to make, where clearly someone is looking to extract something you know, from the other person.
0: Yeah. I, you know, it, here's the other thing now, case by case, everything yeah. is case by case. Oh, do you want to speak at this event? Well, we're not going to pay you, but this, and this is the audience. And here's the locate and the location is, you know, five blocks from your apartment. Like I've learned over the time and I've talked about this with my agent is it's case by case.
1: So that's case by case. Right. But as an example, if I sent you an intro to someone tomorrow who had a $100,000 budget and want to talk to you about speaking at their conference, you're probably not going to be upset at me, correct?
0: <laughs> no, I mean, I'll uh, <laughs> no. buy Dom on and celebrate you. Right. I mean, that is
1: the type of thing where if I use my emotional intelligence, I know that there is a mutual gain, not that one person is trying to get something from the other. So. All right, but let's uh, let's transition to your most recent book, Back to Human, um, which is fascinating and resonates with a lot of concepts that we're, we're rolling out here at Acceleration Partners. You talk about this hot-button issue of the need for more connectivity in the technology age. So, you know, without giving us the whole book, but what, what should business and business leaders do to create more human connection in their workplaces today?
0: Yeah, well, we discovered when I was researching for the book, is that technology is a double-edged sword. It can be good or bad depending on how, when, and where you use it. And I think that's important to remember because we're gonna have more and more technology every single year. It's not like we're going it's not like in the future there won't be driverless cars yeah. or or you'll walk into, a, you know, a building and technology will be part of the entire experience. Like this is going to happen. It's already starting to happen. And thus it becomes how you're using the technology. So What I like to say is use technology as a bridge to human connection, and don't let it be a barrier between yourself and those you want to connect with. And I say this because technology can lead you to physical situations where you can interact with people, but if you're still using it when you're with people, you are not present and it's just counterproductive. You know when you're using technology too much, for instance, if you're going back and forth in email 34 times.
1: (laughs) And the person sitting across from you and you have headphones on?
0: Yeah, even after maybe the second email, that's feedback that your message isn't getting across and that you might want to pick up the phone or walk over their desk. And there was a study in the Harvard Business Review that found that one face-to-face conversation is more effective than 34 emails exchanged back and forth. And what we found in the study, I partnered with uh, Virgin Pulse to interview 2,000 managers and employees worldwide, and email is the biggest thing that gets in the way of face-to-face communication. So I had a CEO who expressed this frustration, something I always have with her customer service people, which are all
1: millennials, just emailing, emailing. And she said, just struggle to, how do you get millennials to pick up the phone and understand that you could probably resolve that, you know, much faster and hear their voice and empathize? Because she was really struggling, like trying to get that message to, you know, it was just kind of a Gen X leadership team and a millennial workforce.
0: I think it's using the technology. So yeah. use the technology, to sync up each other's calendars and then use Zoom and force people to use the camera part of Zoom and do a video conference. Uh, This is one of the big trends in corporate America, actually. And I found this through researching for the book. I interviewed 100 top young leaders at various companies and they said that they force their employees to use video when they have calls, especially the remote workers. And that's really helped them because you know, if you don't see someone and you hear their voice for a long period of time, you're less connected. And so I think the smart thing to do is think about when you're using the technology. Like if you're in a conference room and everyone's looking at their phone, why are you even having a meeting in the first place? Yeah. So I think what the book is trying to do and what I'm trying to preach is, hey, we know the technology is addictive right? That's the business model of all these tech companies like Apple and Google is to get you to use the phone as much as possible because your attention is what they monetize and you are the product. But we're also guilty of this too. And so just be more conscious of how, when, where you're using it. And it's so fascinating because you can be physically in a place, but up mentally, spiritually, or emotionally. And what I always say is not having your phone is the new vacation. So because we're always on, we're never present. And that can be to our detriment. And so, I think it, if leaders want a more human workplace, they want a, a workplace that's healthier and more connected, and where people stay longer. Then the human contact needs to be there, you know. And it's like, even if you do have remote workers, can you bring them together at least a few times a year so that they meet each other? Because, you know, what we found in the study is if you work remote always, you are much less likely to want a long-term career with your company. And it's because of the relationships, yeah. right? Like I interviewed a ton of people for the book who invite their coworkers to their weddings and, and go to events outside of work with them. And, and they even say that the reason why they've stayed with the company is because the, of their working relationships. Now, think about this. If you have strong relationships in the workplace, and you get an offer to work at a different company for five or ten thousand dollars more, you might not quickly accept that because you're you're leaving a family instead of weak ties, strong yeah. bonds instead of weak ties, and so that is a consideration for people.
3: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching from the launch your online shop stage
1: Well, the book titled Back to Human, right? And you're talking about sort of getting back to these humanistic principles, but isn't there kind of another shift too about bringing more of your whole self into the workplace? I think in the command and control era of of business, it was like, look, leave yourself out of this, (laughs) come to work and do your job. And it, it doesn't seem like that's a recipe for companies to survive, a cultural recipe for companies to either survive or thrive in 2020 and beyond.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things we just talked about, you know, forcing people to use video chat and video conferencing. There's also empowering people who aren't there physically with you. So leaders in the book would let remote workers run meetings, right? So you put them in the driver's seat. Some leaders would fly across the world to meet in person with their teams. So I think it just takes this next level of investment. I mean, we we did find the best way to create a, a more human and socially connected workplace is, you know, team building activities, offsites, workations, not even in your corporate office, but offsites right. where people let down their guards and are and are more comfortable talking about personal related things.
1: Well, you actually wrote an article on the ten workplace trends for 2020 and one in particular I want to highlight is you you said the idea of therapy being part of the workplace. Why do you think it's important for employees to make room for their employer sorry to make room for their employees to open up about issues such as mental health at work? I know there's there's a lot of people who are very uncomfortable <laughs> when they hear something like that.
0: Yeah, it's things have changed significantly over the past even few years. I mean, so many celebrities have come out talking about their own mental health issues. It's not like I'm the biggest Justin Bieber fan, but his documentary, the last episode that you can watch on YouTube, he talks about his mental health struggles and and depression and anxiety. And so, this did not happen when you know my parents were growing up. Like no, no do would,
1: not bring that stuff to work. Like, there was no,
0: there was no mental health problems. No one would bring it to work. And now I think we recognize that you bring your mental health problems to work, and you bring them home after work. So work and life are very intertwined. So if you have a a very tough work day where you're stressed, you might be lashing out at your family members or friends outside of work. Right. I mean, that's part of why I dedicate, you know, my life to improving the workplace and making it better and, and healthier for everyone. Because if we improve work for people, that doesn't just improve their work lives, that improves their entire lives. Work is a third of our lives
1: yeah and and you're the same i always say you're the same person at home and at work you know you don't you don't you're not at home tired stressed deprioritized and you walk into work and you excel in in all of those areas i know one of the concerns that some business leaders and ceos have about this i'm curious your take or whether there's anything formulating around this even in the hr or legal circles is if companies kind of start opening pandora's box like what responsibility do they do they carry in this? I, I have specifically talked to people who, well, they welcome the idea. They're nervous about what comes out of that and, and the organization and managers not being properly equipped to to handle that.
0: No, I mean, it, it, there's awareness campaigns. Like EY had the Okay campaign. I think Citigroup had a campaign as well in the UK. This is all really big in the UK. The US is very late to the game. Interesting. <laughs> so the UK government actually supports Uh, employers who want to take the employer pledge to support mental health in the workplace. And over 800 companies have signed up as of last year. So yeah, the U S is lagging behind, but half of uh, workers say that the workplace has a negative impact on their overall mental health. And I think a lot of this has to do with coming out of the recession of 2008 because the mantra that corporations had back then and, and still now is, is do more with less do more work and get higher returns with fewer resources, which, what do you think happened? It put pressure on workers. And that pressure has resulted in a lot of the mental health issues that we're facing today. Of course, mental illness has been around forever, but I think, you know, especially with young people, they're experiencing it more and more now because, you know, the biggest mental health uh, stressor right now is finances you know, and it's not like people are making a lot more money than they did a year or two or three years ago. In fact, wages are pretty stagnant, even though companies are seeing record profits.
1: So I'm sure you have some other new projects uh, on the horizon or research or things that you're focused on. What what should we expect to see coming from Dan in the, in the next months or years?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm going to explore more on human topics. I think that my last book, Back to Human, has steered me in that direction because it's, it's resonating, you know, things yeah. that have this mass appeal and that people are facing and, and shed a light on them. I actually think my role in society now, based on the past several years, is to use research and communication and storytelling to take issues that people are facing and promote them so that people are aware of them. And then, you know, the first step in solving a problem is awareness. So I think the awareness part, I'm uh good at. I think the uh the actual solving the issues like mental health in the workplace, that's gonna take a longer time. It's gonna take more resources, it's gonna take partners to be able to help implement different programs. Uh and there's not that many companies that have mental health programs at work. Like there's Johnson and Johnson, there's Starbucks, there's EY, there's Deloitte, there's the MBA, there's Chipotle. There's not that many. There might be yeah. 20 to 30, but think of how many companies there are. And I think the biggest obstacle right now is that while the stigma is being, you know, kind of removed a little bit, the companies are just not set up to handle it because, and there's fears of like lawsuits. So that it's, it's not straightforward. There's hurdles, but there's at least conversations taking place. So that's definitely where I want to go, but I'll, I'm also going to focus more on AI. Every year I study AI and the the changing uh, you know, adoption rates within companies and what companies are doing and how job roles are going to be reshaped through all this new technology. That really interests me. And the future of jobs, the future of skills, that's all really uh, unique and interesting. What else? The employer-employee relationship, what that's going to look like in the future? Or the yeah. robot-employee relationship? <laughs> so uh, there's so many topics, right? And I think what's been really uh, interesting is just having done so many research, I've reviewed also seven or eight thousand studies over the course of my career. So it's just like seeing how everything unfolds, and then seeing where the opportunities are to start the conversations that are meaningful, make an impact, and and you know, are the first step to solving these greater problems.
1: Awesome. Well, it sounds like you got some exciting topics on the horizon.
0: What's the best place for people to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, if you go to danshawbell.com, that's s c h a w b e l dot com. Uh also on LinkedIn I have a newsletter called Workplace Intelligence Weekly. I have Instagram and my book is Back to Human. Paper back out in March.
1: If you cannot find Dan online, you are not trying very hard. Or, or right. I mean, he's he's everywhere. Well, Dan. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Uh, you're doing some really interesting research on some important topics and I'm I'm excited to keep following your work. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on the show. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Dan and his work and his books on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode with Dan and you've been enjoying other episodes of the Elevate podcast, I'd love to ask for a quick favor. Uh, And that is to leave a review as it helps new users discover the show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, all you have to do is look down at your phone, hit the library icon, click on Elevate, and scroll down the bottom to leave your rating or review. Thank you again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating.